It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews were gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not, or you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, to, I said You are God's. And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father." Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. pray as we start off our time. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these uh, verses in John chapter 10, and just we thank you, Lord, that we can look back on time and interactions and, and learn more about who you are and therefore who we are created to be. So we pray now that you would take these words and transform us, shape us into your likeness and your image. Father, we thank you and give you the rest of the, this morning. In your name, amen. Well, it's great to be with you here today. Uh, my wife and I, uh, last night, uh, you know, it's daylight saving, so we got a little extra hour sleep, but, it, but, you know, I'm tired because our team, our alma mater in college, beat USC last night, so that's a good thing, right? UCLA fans, come on, you should be happy about uh, the Huskies last night. Keeping, yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> it was a good game. I think it was like 100 to 90 at the end, but it was, it was fun to watch. A um, little stressful, so we're kind of coming down off the, the uh, nerves today. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, smile and nod. We'll move on. All right, we're in uh, John chapter 10 here today. And uh, John chapter 10, uh, have you ever um, interacted with someone who was famous or who you thought maybe that was a famous person and it changed the way you were behaving around them? 
I, I remember years ago, I was on a plane, I was flying back from uh, London to Southern California, and I was sitting back in the nosebleed seats, where is normally where I travel. Uh, so, you know, kind of row 78 on uh, British Air flying home, and the guy next to me, and if you've ever flown that flight, it's 11 hours of joy of uh, sharing elbow space, people you don't know if you're alone. And we're flying back, and the guy next to me is writing all these notes, and he kind of has this almost mad scientist look about him. And we got to talking, and, and I would see some of the things that he's writing, because of course you always see, right? <laughs> because there's no room. But, and, and he was brainstorming all this stuff and talking about how to think. And he told me at one point, he said, oh, I am uh, one of the executive officers, one of the executives for uh, Citibank. I was like, that's pretty big. And then he also said, I teach some classes at the Warden's uh, School of Business or whatever that is. And I thought, that's amazing. So then I'm thinking, I should get to know this guy. I need to, I, I want to, that's a great connection to have. I don't know how that connects to being a pastor, but hey, that's, that's someone. Um, and, and so we kind of got to know. And then it took me a while to realize, like, why is he in row 56 with me? <laughs> If that's who he is. And, and so I kind of was a little skeptical about who he was as we flew, but we got, got talking. And at one point, I made the decision, I'm not actually going to, you know, do the LinkedIn connection to become best buds because I, I don't know, there's something about him. He's probably not who he says he was. And so we landed, we, you know, said goodbye, got home later, looked him up. He was who he said he was. <laughs> Sitting back there in row 56, probably saving money for Citibank or something. I don't know why. But sometimes when we're around people of great significance, it can change the way we behave to them because there's something in our nature that sometimes is just, we treat people differently, don't we? If we think maybe there's something in it for us, no matter how unselfish we try to be, it's there. It's interesting as we're going through this series and looking at the study of Jesus and how he's interacting with the Jewish people, how they're wrestling with how do we respond to this person? If he is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior who sent for us, how do we respond to that? And we see people who respond wholeheartedly, who respond with life transformation, and we see others who are skeptical and wrestling with it and saying, how could it be that if this is the Son of God, why is he coming the way he came? This is not what we expect to see Jesus in row 56 with me. And so today, what, the question that I want to present to you as we study through this is what if, what if we actually lived as if we believed Jesus is who he said he was? What if we actually took that truth that, that Jesus is everything that he said he is and everything he said he'd fulfill and we really took it to heart, what would that do to our lives? And, and not just on Sunday mornings, maybe not just prayer time at the end of the day, but not just when you're in need, but what if all the time? We lived as if we believed that Jesus is who he said he is. 
And, and we see people wrestling with that today. So let's jump into the text and, and learn some things about Jesus and, and how we can respond. So starts off, John chapter 10, verse 22. It says, at that time as the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. Now, we've told you, anytime you're reading scripture, we want to have you get in the habit of when you see something, give you a location, a time, or even people you want to ask, well, what is the significance of that? So here is the Feast of Dedication took place. So we, the first thing we should ask is, what is that? Now, the Feast of Dedication is a Jewish holiday that is not found in the Jewish scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's not there. This is actually what we would call today, we call it Hanukkah. So interesting that here is now this picture of this thing called Hanukkah. Now, I'm going to give you a quick, very quick little history lesson. Um, this is going to be on the test, so, um, so pay attention a little bit. So what, what is Hanukkah? What does it celebrate? And why is Jesus found celebrating it in the first century if it's not listed in the Old Testament? Starts off this way. We have to understand Israel was a nation. They were a kingdom. They had a land and they were, um, the northern kingdom got exiled. And then the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is got exiled in year 586 by the Babylonians. So it's exiled or 585 got exiled to Babylonia. They were now living in exile. Another empire came over. The Persian empire took over for the Babylonians and said, if you, Jewish people, you're welcome to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, restart your faith in Jerusalem. That's where we get the Old Testament books, Ezra and Nehemiah, where they're told to go back and they can rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So they go back. That's where the Old Testament history really ends. We have what we call 400 years of silence, where we don't, between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ, we don't read much. We don't actually have anything in Scripture about that. And during that time, two things happened. One was the Persian Empire was defeated by a guy named Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire. Okay, you got all of this on the test. All right, so Alexander the Great come, takes over and he was friendly to the Jews because they had this policy that was essentially do your thing, worship your way, just as long as you don't interfere with us. But this is where the Greek language became universal during that season. Eventually, that, the, even that Greek empire kind of divides and a new leader over, the king, over Jerusalem rises up named Antiochus Epiphanes. You don't have to memorize all this, but... Antiochus Epiphanes, his name essentially means the appearance of God on high or something like that. He names himself that way, by the way. Great name, right? He hated the Jews. He detested their faith. And he decides to go into the temple, says you can no longer worship your God, Yahweh. We're going to worship Greek gods. And he sacrifices pigs in the, temp in the Jewish temple. That's an unclean animal. He did it on purpose. He did it to offend them. Um, it, this was an abomination. By the way, you can read the book of Daniel. There's some interesting connections to these, uh, what we're seeing here. But he does this, and for a period of three and a half years, there was no worship of the Jewish God, of, of Yahweh in the temple. It led to what we know, what we call the Maccabean Revolt. And this is where the Jews rose up, in year 135, um, sorry, 165, and they uh, eventually defeated the Greeks and rededicated the temple in year 165 BC. 
So they rededicated the temple, and dedication is where you get the word Hanukkah. So they, they brought in a new altar, new uh, lampstand, new everything, and they started worshiping and celebrating Hanukkah. A guy named Judas the Maccabee, or Judas the Hammer, is what they call it. that's what that means, um, is the one who led them. He died a few years later in a battle, but he said, let's every year celebrate this dedication of the temple with an eight-day festival that takes place and, and on the 25th of their month, Kislev, and we will celebrate it every year to commemorate it. So here, almost 200 years later, the Jews are still celebrating. The Jewish historian Josephus, who is not a Christian, uh, who is writing about Hanukkah, says this, I suppose the reason that this is such a great celebration was because the liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us. And that's why we gave the name to this festival. So a liberty, a freedom beyond hopes came to the Jewish people in what's called Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of Lights. And they would light a, a candle each of eight days. Now those of you who know the, the tradition of Hanukkah, there's this belief that there was oil, enough oil for one day when they lit their menorah, but it miraculously lasted for eight days. That actually isn't in the very first description of Hanukkah, but that's what's celebrated now. And so that's... that's part of the celebration. And just for you guys to kind of see, um, this slide here, this first slide, is a picture of in AD 70, when the Romans defeated Jerusalem again, so this is quite a bit later, this is, a, this is called the Arch of Titus, if you've ever been to Rome, um, this is there, and it's showing the Romans pillaging the temple of the Jews, and these are some of the things they're taking out of there. Notice you have that lampstand that we call a menorah is um, what is being taken away from the temple in Jerusalem, which gives evidence to when we read the Bible and say, did the temple ever exist? Did the Jewish people ever worship in Jerusalem? Is this a true story? Still to this day, you can see this, that when the G Romans conquered the Israelites in 70, they took this from the temple and they made an image of it. Um, another picture, just so you know, again, Hanukkah, this is uh, the menorah that they light now. You can see that there are actually nine candles. Eight of them are for the eight days, and the other one is kind of called the servant candle, or the, and it's used to light the others. Some pretty cool imagery when you bring Jesus into it, and this is the menorah they light on the western wall every year. So this festival now takes place in John chapter 10 when Jesus is celebrating it. It's about dedication of the temple, a cleansing, a new worship of God. That's what's happening. And now, the Jews come to Jesus and say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Which if you've been reading through the book of John, you would think, I think he's told you a few times. And he's told them in many kind of ways. He's told them through parables. He's told them through analogy. He's um, constantly been saying, I am the better version of everything that you are putting your hope on. I'm the better version of Moses. I'm the better version of the law, the provision of the bread in the desert when you were in, Israel, or in Egypt. It's wandering. I am, the, I am the bread of life. I'm the better version of this because I am God with you. I am his anointed one who's been sent to you. They've tried to kill him multiple times for claiming to be God. So now they're saying, all right, all right, all right, all right. Would you just say it? Tell us plainly, who are you? Are you the Christ? 
The question, the big question they want to know is, are you the Messiah? That means the anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. The Savior that's being sent to us. Is that who you really are? Because if that's who you're saying you are, that means all of our scripture has been pointing to you. Just say you think you are or you're not. Would you tell us plainly? Jesus says to them, I told you, and you don't believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. But you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. They, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And that no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given my sheep to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you might be thinking, did he tell them plainly or did he, is he going down another rabbit trail? <laughs> He's telling them plainly, but he's saying, I've been telling you that I am the Christ. I am God in flesh who's come, but you don't understand or listen because you're not part of my sheep. You refuse to believe what you're seeing in front of you. You refuse to believe that this is who I am. And a little side note, it's not what the sermon's about today, but I hope for someone today you needed to hear this one part, that my sheep know me, I know them, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. It's not the point of the sermon today. It could be. But I want somebody in here today needs to know that no one, if you are in Christ, no one can snatch you out of God's hands. Your bad decisions cannot snap you, snatch you out of God's hands. The, the chaos around you cannot snatch you out of the hands of a loving father. You are secure in him. Amen? Know that truth that he drops there. So then he, he goes on and says, and I and the Father are one. This is a bold statement. So the Jews pick up stones. They want to kill Jesus. And he said, I showed you many good works from the Father. Which one are you of these? Are you stoning me for? <laughs> what, what have I done that you actually, why do you actually want to kill me? So here's something that we see now in this story is we see in Jesus through all of the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, he makes it clear that Jesus' works confirm his identity. So through the Gospel of John, there's specific, he has seven specific miracles that are signs. They're over and over again. John wants us to know that what Jesus is doing is confirming who he is. So his works confirm his identity. That's why I was so confused when I'm sitting on the plane in row 56, flying home in economy next to a guy who said he's an executive officer for one of the biggest companies in the world. I'm thinking his works are not confirming his identity right now. <laughs> at least, you know, get a window seat. I, I mean, at least get an aisle seat or something. Pay the 25 bucks to go there or something. His works were not confirming his identity, so I was confused. But see, Jesus, his works were saying time and time again, just look at what I do. You should, this should be clear. Essentially saying, or the, the question for us is this, uh, or thought is this. It goes to an old saying. It says, if you really want to know who a person is, watch what he does more than listen to what he says. If you really want to know who someone is, watch what they do more than listen to what they say. So Jesus here is, it's, they're saying, tell us, are you the Christ? And he says, just look at what I've done. 
That should be enough for you to know who I am. So his works confirm his identity. Now, what does the ident- how do his works confirm his identity is a question we need to address. How does the things that Jesus has done, what does that tell us that would make us say, oh, okay, that's why we can believe he's the Messiah. And there's a, a few thoughts for us today. The first one is this. Jesus' works demonstrate his authority over sickness and death. More than anyone in, ever, in history, Jesus wasn't just some magic man, but he had authority over sickness and death. See, in the other Gospels, there's a story about John the Baptist. John the Baptist started off the book of John by saying, hey, this guy Jesus is the Messiah. He was known as a prophet, and he said when he saw Jesus, he said, he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's the one we've been waiting for. That's John the Baptist. Now, the other Gospels tell us what happened to John the Baptist later in his life. He was imprisoned, and he was beheaded, so he lost his life. When he was in prison waiting to die, he sent a message to Jesus and asked him this, Jesus, I've told everyone you're the Messiah. I live my whole life believing you're the Messiah. I just have to know before I die, are you the one we've been waiting for? In other words, did I get it right? I'm about to die. I just, can you just tell me, are you the one? Did I get it right? And Jesus sent back this response in a very Jesus way, who said, go tell John this. The deaf can hear, the blind can see, and those who are crippled can walk again. Thanks, Jesus. All right. <laughs> That's how he, now, why did he tell him that? Why didn't he just say like, hey, yeah, I'm him. Just so you know, you got it right. He did say you got it right, but he said it in a very Jesus, very Jewish teacher way. He said, tell him that the, all of these things that are happening. Now, this is in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, speaking of the Messiah, says this. Then the, when the Messiah appears, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like deer, and the, the mute tongue will shout for joy. In other words, evidence of the coming Messiah will be he will have authority over sickness and death, and you will see a reverse of the curse of sin in this world. Now, we talked about a few weeks ago that Jesus is giving us a temporary, not a full release from that. The healings that he has is just a taste of what's to come as he's making all things new. But it's an example to those watching him saying, I have authority over the thing that we all suffer through day after day, sickness, death, and disease. I can change it if I want to. Now, of course, we wish that in Christ he would heal every one of those things for us, do we not? He doesn't. Sometimes he does. Often he doesn't. But in these cases, as he did, he was demonstrating, as the Messiah comes, I have authority even over these. Different than any other healer or magic person or medicine man or anything, I can change it. So what else does Jesus' work? So the first thing they confirm, that he has authority over sickness and death. The next thing that we see is that his works demonstrate his authority over sin. This is a good news for us. We're going to see ultimately when he gives his life and he raises from the dead that he once and for all conquers death. 
We find that, Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians. But Jesus himself has authority over sin. There's a cool story in Luke chapter five. There's a man who's paralyzed and he's trying to get to Jesus and he can't get to him and his friends, there's, he, Jesus is in a house that's crowded and his friends wanna kind of crowd surf him in there. They can't quite get through the door so they tear a hole in the roof and lower their friend down through the roof to be healed by Jesus. What a great moment, right? Especially if you're the homeowner and you're just looking up there like, I hope insurance will pay for that, I don't know. Um, but you see this guy being lowered from the roof and, and I'm sure the sermon stopped and everything stopped and they looked up and see this man being lowered down to Jesus and he's placed before Jesus, paralyzed. This is a great moment for the Messiah to do what? You're healed, get up and walk, right? That's what he wants. So, what does Jesus do? Luke chapter five, verse 20. After seeing their faith, Jesus says to the man who's paralyzed, friend, your sins are forgiven. What? Now, I'm not sure if that was a letdown or not. <laughs> when you're like getting let down through the roof, you're paralyzed and you're like, oh, here's Jesus, he heals people. He goes, hey, you're forgiven. You're like, cool, but can I walk? You know, I don't, I don't know what that really was like, but I'm sure there's this moment where he understood the magnitude of it. Your sins are forgiven. And it says the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking in their heads, who is this man, Jesus, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins except for God alone? So all the religious teachers saw Jesus forgive a man's sin and they're saying no one has a right to forgive sins except for God because no one has authority over sin except God. So who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, looked at them and said, why are you thinking this way? What, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said, get up and walk. Jesus was saying, I want you to know, you've already seen I have authority over sickness and death, but I want you to know that in my name, I have authority over sin. That even sin cannot hold me down. That's why I'm here to defeat it once and for all. So these are very much things that the Messiah was coming to do. We have in Isaiah 53, it's the servant, the Messiah of Israel comes to take away the sins of the world. Who else can take away the sins? Nobody but God himself. So his, dem his works demonstrated, not only does he have authority over sickness and death, but he also has authority over sin. The other thing we see is this. His works demonstrated that he was equal with God the Father, and this becomes the crux of their problem with him. Notice they say to him, we're not stoning you because you do good things. They're like, yeah, it's pretty cool that you do all these good things. We're okay with that. But we're stoning you because you speak, you think you are God. He just, Jesus just said, I and the Father are one. We're one in purpose. We are one God. And this is where we get some of our Trinity language in Scripture, where we get this understanding that there's this complex nature of God. We have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all God. They're all distinct. They're unique. They're simultaneously existing. They've always existed. But that's God is one God with these three distinct people. 
And Jesus is indicating that. And his words, his actions demonstrate that he is proclaiming, that's me. Now, any madman could come and say that and create a new theology, right? But we look at passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah chapter 9, prophecy of the Messiah. In verse 6, it says this. And since Christmas season is coming, we're ready for it, right? For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The only one who can claim to be God is God in flesh who's coming to us. And there was debate, I want to be honest with you, there's debate in the first century about the nature of the Messiah. Would he be the Son of God with us? But as we put the pieces together and we see these passages, as well as Isaiah chapter 7 that says, one will be born to a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel or Emmanuel, God with us. This is how we start to say, oh, that it's been spoken from the beginning that God would come in flesh as the Messiah. And so he comes. He claims to be God. And you start looking at scripture and you say, oh, this is consistent. This is actually what they should have been expecting. And now his works, because they're consistent, is demonstrating that he is equal with God the Father. Go back to John chapter 10, verse 31. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Later on, uh, he said, we're not stoning you for your good work, but for blasphemy, because you being man, make yourself out to be God. Verse 34, I'm gonna take a minute, just a minute to try to explain this to you, because when we read it, if your head's not spinning, you're much smarter than me. So this is how Jesus answers them. It says, Jesus answers them, has it not been written in your law, or in other words, in our scripture, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, scriptures cannot be nullified. Are you saying of him, meaning me, who the Father set apart and sent into the world that I'm blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Clear? <laughs> so what Jesus is doing is he is doing a very rabbinical approach of he's quoting one verse from, from a passage, which then should cause them to recall the whole verse. This is from Psalm 82. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. And we'll try to make some sense of it. Psalm 82 says this. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? How long will you defend the weak and the father, or defend the weak and the fatherless? Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Stop there for a second before we move on to the next one. Uh, Go back to that first part of Psalm 82. You can see he's starting off, the Psalm 82 is a criticism of the leaders of Israel for being unfair, unjust judges. And sometimes this word Elohim in this one psalm can be used multiple ways. It means God, as we know as God the creator. It can be angels, and sometimes it's judges or leaders. That helps clarify, doesn't it? Hebrew language, remember, in the Old Testament has about 6,000 words. So words often mean many things at once. So the context is what helps you understand. So this psalm is saying, God's rendering judgment among the gods or the judges, the leaders, and saying to them, how long are you going to show partiality and be unfair leaders? You're not taking care of the poor and the oppressed and the fatherless. If you were here last week, do you recall 
Jesus was criticizing, he pulled up Ezekiel 34 and said, you have been unfair leaders, bad shepherds, and I am the good shepherd. So it's a continuation, really, of thought of, once again, he's saying, I'm judging you as leaders with this psalm. The psalm goes on, Psalm 82, you can go to the next slide, says, the gods know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken, and here's what Jesus quoted, I said you are gods, you are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mortals, you will fall like every other ruler. So rise up, O God, now he's talking about the Father God, judge the earth for your nations are your inheritance. Hebrew can be confusing sometimes. But so this is, it was a criticism of those unfair judges saying, but you are all, I called you gods, but you're son of the most high, but in the sense of you are children of God the Father. Now, I want to just make a quick note. This is, again, side note. This is not a belief or a theology that says you and I are actually gods. There are some beliefs, some religions that say that people are gods. That's not what this is saying. Please don't go down that road. This is a, a, a use of uh, words that was intended to indicate something that had to do with judges we misunderstand in English. There's no theology that says we're gods. We are children of God in Christ, and we are sons of the Most High. So now, here's the thing. How does this make Jesus' case? That's the question, right? How does quoting this make his case when they say, you said you're a God, and Jesus says, well, your scripture says you're God's. Let me make it, here's two, there's one very simple one, one a little more complex. The first simple thing, that way to understand it is this. Jesus is saying to them, hey, we both believe in scripture, right? The Jewish leaders would say, yes. Jesus said it can't be nullified. What's written is true. We agree. And scripture called people gods in one case. He used the word, this terminology. Yes, okay, so why then are you hung up on a word that's in Scripture that called other people's gods, and you're worried about this when you're not paying attention to the works I do? That's the simple argument. It could just be that. Like, hey, guys, yeah, yeah, Scripture called other people gods, so let's move on and move on to the next thing. Literally, that could be what he's doing. Just really simply, like, you're, you're, this is a rabbit trail. A little le- level deeper could be this. The scholar D.A. Carson says it this way. This would be the argument he's saying. If humans who do evil works as they judge unjustly are sometimes called gods in Scripture, how much more will Jesus, who does good works, should be called the Son of God? It's another way of saying it. Still not clear it's okay. This one isn't on the test. So, (laughs) but this is just showing how Jesus is using Scripture to point out something and basically saying, you guys are on, you're, you're focused on the wrong thing and you're not looking at the works I've been doing. Because he goes right back in verse 32 and said, if I don't do the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, you better believe in the works so you may know and understand that the father's in me and I am in the father. And therefore they sought to arrest him again. Essentially saying, you guys are so caught up on all these, your religion, your misunderstanding, all of these things, and you are not looking at evidence that's right before your eyes. Pay attention to what I've been doing. 
And this also is going to be a foreshadow. When he gives his life and raises again, there's still some people who refuse to believe in a resurrected Lord. Saying, if you don't worry about the words, look at what I do. The book of John ends this way. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says this. I have it on the screen for you. John is writing, and he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may, get this everyone, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What John wants us to know, he's saying, I was there. I saw it. Jesus performed these things. He confirmed who he was. He's this amazing God who's done all of these things. Believe, would you believe in this Jesus, that he is the son of God, and if you do, you may have life in his name. Friends, I want to go back to our first question. If we really believe that Jesus is who he said he was in scripture, what in your life do you need to surrender to him and be transformed by? Is our life in Christ just a ho-hum, hey, when is the sermon over kind of life in Christ, or is it, if this is Jesus, we want the world to know We want to do something about, we want our church to explode with people who are meeting Jesus, who's seeing their lives transformed and addictions broken and marriages healed and and walking with one another through the hard times and good times and all of that. We want to be people of hope. We want to be people when we go into an election season where the, the, the world looks at us and says, those Christians have it figured out. Not because they know how to vote, but, be, but because, because we agree with how they vote, but because they know how to love one another and love us even in our differences. What if we lived like Jesus really was real? It should move us to passion. It should fill the seed of every church in the country that's preaching the name of Jesus. It's not just a spectator sport. It's something where we say we're all in. Because we want others to know this truth. We're going to end our time here, and I want to um, show you a video of, this is uh, an, from one of our longtime missionaries at Seacoast who's retiring this year. We've supported him for the entire history of Seacoast, 35 years. And he was supported by the Baptist church that used to be in this building before we took over. And uh, he and his wife uh, are retiring. This is from Lloyd and Ruth Milligan. We want to watch just a a few-minute update on what he's accomplished. And I want you to catch something. I want you to see that when he encountered Jesus the Messiah, what it caused and called he and his wife to do. It's amazing. So let's go ahead and take a look on the screen. Seacoast. This is Lloyd Milligan here in South Carolina. I'm sorry my wife Ruth can't be with me today, but we want to thank you for 40 years or more of partnering with us in our work with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And I'd like to show you what some of that work was like over our last 40 years. Did you know that there are over 7,000 languages spoken in the world? and 700 of them are spoken in Papua New Guinea. Ruth and I met and got married in Dallas, Texas in 1980 and trained with Wycliffe to become translators in Papua New Guinea. We ended up serving in the Munsing language group, which is where this red box is here on the island of New Britain. 
When we first went to the village, 100% of the houses were all built completely out of bush material and had to be rebuilt every seven years or so because the bugs would eat them. But nowadays, the houses are more permanent with metal roofs and sawn timber. And the church is beautiful too. Over the years, this was our house and we had to expand it uh, because when we first went, we didn't have any children and we had four children and we ended up raising in the village during our 18 years in Papua New Guinea. It rains over 400 inches of rain a year in La Vega Village. So we had to learn the language and so we would sit down and write down words and point at things and figure out uh, and learn the Munsing language, learn its grammar and its vocabulary. We were able to develop uh, an appropriate alphabet for them and we developed literacy materials to help them learn how to read and write their own language. Often it only takes one day to teach someone to read and write uh, when they have the proper alphabet for their language. Back in those days, there were no personal computers, so all of our translation work had to be done by hand. But fortunately, it was only a couple of years later that the first PCs came out and we were, we were able to continue our work uh, using PCs. The most wonderful day in our lives was July 1st of 2000 when the Munsing New Testament was dedicated in the village. There were over 3,000 guests who came to celebrate. It was just so awesome to see people so excited about having God's word in their own language. After we returned to the States and were working uh, from the US, we had the opportunity to go back to Papua New Guinea a number of times, and we led college and high school students into the village so they could spend time really seeing what Bible translation was like. After we came home, uh, I was involved in different kinds of training, training of recruiters, uh, training at Christian colleges, but my favorite for, sort of training was going back to Papua New Guinea and training national translators to translate their own language and so that they could put the New Testament in their, in their own languages. Ruth was also involved in training. Every few months, she would go down to Wycliffe and train new Wycliffe members in the policies and practices of Wycliffe. After I got out of training, I was able to work in consulting and my favorite consulting was helping Hobson in La Vega Village translate the Old Testament into Munsing. There's several books that have been finished, but there's still a long way to go, and we would appreciate your prayers for Hobson and that continued work. A couple years ago, we discovered that Ruth has Alzheimer's disease, and it's been progressing probably for about four years now. And so last June, the end of June, we decided it was time for us to retire from Wycliffe, uh, mostly so I would have uh, freedom to take care of Ruth and see her needs as her Alzheimer's disease progresses. So Seacoast family, thank you so much for being a part of our lives all these years. And I pray that you will find another translation project to be involved in. God bless you. <laughs> you know what I love about that? Here's the thing. When uh, Lloyd and Ruth went there, God compelled their hearts to go. 
And there was a group of people that did not know the gospel of Jesus. They never heard it. And now they know and follow Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So that is the power of God on display. Here's what we're going to do right now. This is, I, I said it's low tech, but I guess it's not low tech. I am FaceTiming with Lloyd right now. And what I want you to do is let's, I'm going to bring him up on the, well, it's not on the screen. It's only on my screen. And I want you guys, we're going to just thank him for what he and Ruth have done to be faithful to the gospel. Um, okay, here we are, bringing him in. Lloyd, here we are. A church, would you, we're so glad to have you. We just watched your video, and we want to say um, it has been our joy to, to partner with you. Uh, I can do this, but no one's going to see it but me, but that's all right. <laughs> it is our joy that we've been able to partner you, with you for 40 years, and uh, what a great example to us of someone who's been transformed by Jesus who said they wants the world to know. Um, and our challenge this morning is that that truth of Jesus, we want it to change each of our hearts and lives um, here to the ends of the earth. And we're so grateful for the work you and Ruth did. And we just want you to know, church, let's let them know right now how much we appreciate his. Lloyd, <laughs> we're getting a thumbs up. We're getting a thumbs up. We're grateful for, to you. We continue to be uh, your part of Seacoast forever. Um, we're grateful to you. We know the Monsoon people are, and thank you for being an example to us. Uh, we love you and are with you on the journey, uh, and, and thank you again. We did it together. All right. Thank you, Lloyd. Well, I'll talk to you in about an hour. <laughs> okay. All right. Goodbye. All right. We're going to sing one last song here together. Would you guys, let's worship and respond with our hearts for the Lord.